Interac helps Canadians access funds their way. Products like Interac Debit and Interac eTransfer have made Money Mobile, taking it from the confines of traditional banking and ushering it into the digital age. As consumers adapt to new technology, so does Interac. Learn more at newsroom.interac.ca. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Quality Content on the 2020 Network presented by Interac. I'm your host, Alex Patterson. Are we too dumb for democracy? That is the framing question for David Moscrop's new book of the same name. And while the answer is not really, we sure are encouraged to be. David is a political theorist who, in the wake of Donald Trump's election, Brexit, and the rise of populist movements the world over, turned his doctoral thesis from the University of British Columbia into a new book that looks at how and why we make bad political decisions. And fortunately for David, though unfortunately for the rest of us, he had a target-rich environment to pick from. And the book is full of fascinating stories and insights about the way democracy has evolved, struggled, and survived, though just barely. So today I'm veering away from my interview series with the recipients of this year's Governor General Performing Arts Awards for a chat with David about the way we make and interpret political decisions in the 21st century. We talked about how the brain works in partisan environments, his concerns for the health of our democracy, and what might replace it. It is a great companion listen to my conversation a few weeks back with Katie Gibbs about misinformation. I think you'll enjoy it. Joining me in the studio is David Moscroft. David, hi. Hello. How you doing? I'm pretty good. I'm very happy that you're here today. Um, you're actually, I, I've been interviewing, this is a break for me because I've actually been interviewing people, <laughs> uh, recipients of this year's Governor General Performing oh, Arts Awards. No worry about that over here. You're <laughs> safe. <laughs> but no, no, more to the point is that they've all been by phone. So you're actually in the studio. So if I seem like I don't know how to interact with another human being, <laughs> Um, it's because I'm I'm expecting that you're a Skype call and I can just sort of end things if I don't uh, <laughs> if I don't like how it's going. Um, uh, you're the author of the new book "Too Dumb for Democracy: Why We Make Bad Political Decisions and How We Can Make Better Ones." I've really enjoyed reading it. Thank you. It's really good. Um, actually, got it as a birthday gift for my dad. <laughs> oh, uh, well, it was, it was that and a bottle of scotch, and I don't know if oh. those were complimentary or. Like, Can you say what the scotch was? Uh, it was. It, 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 I, we're, we're not sponsored okay, by scotch, no, so I mean, I, I can like you know, I don't want to give that away for free. Right, they got to earn that. Yeah. Okay. Good. <laughs> but I hope it, I hope it was something. PD. Uh, some PD and something that probably helped uh, some of the more dire. Um, <laughs> pictures that you paint in this book go down a little bit easier. Uh, how long did it take you to write the book? It was my doctoral dissertation. Yes. So in that sense, it took 10 years. In the actual sense of typing it out, it took about six months. The, tight line, the, the timeline was pretty tight. Someone rang me up and said, are you writing a book? And I said, yes, which was a lie. But you know, I wanted to, so I said yes, and then I wrote it. I mean, it, it, in it, you know, in my head, it was easy to do because I I knew what I wanted to say. The hardest part was picking anecdotes and stories to fill in the uh, the boring academic stuff that's buried beneath that. Right. But, you know, and it was hard not because. In fact, it was hard because there were so many examples to choose from. Right? I was going to say, looking if, it, at- if it's about bad political decisions, you have the entire human civilization yeah. to pick from. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and so talk me through that, that process then, um, you know, the actual typing it out, you said six months. Um, but in terms of like, how do you triage? Like, what were you looking for in ways that would make your argument um, most illustri- illustrative to your readers? I'd pick stories I liked. It, it was, you know, the process was was easy in the sense that, you know, I, I do the pom-pom, what we call the pom-pom method, the Pomodoro method. You do X minutes on, X minutes off, and I do 50-10. So I'll work for 50 minutes, take a break for 10, do that six times a day with a long break in between, so three and three. I'd wake up in the morning. I'd read for a bit, I'd sit down, I'd do three palms, uh, three times 50. A story would pop into my head as, as I was going. I'd go and research and make sure I had it right, make a little note of it. And then when I was going through the book, I'd just slot the stories in where I thought they fit. And I, the hardest part was picking at the end of the day which ones I wanted to keep because there was a ton of them. And so it was mostly just a matter of taking the dissertation, writing it in real people speak so that it was, you know, you know, I, I committed the, the sort of cardinal academic sin of not turning my dissertation into an academic book because I was writing about democracy and I thought, wouldn't it be nice if someone wrote about democracy in a way that people could read? Wouldn't that be nice? It's a bit of a novel idea. Yeah. I just, you know, as a democratic theorist, it would be really great to write a book that was accessible. <laughs> uh, so that was, so that, so really, I mean, you know, the stories were hard to sift through because there were so many. But then the other thing, the thing was making sure that it was readable and that it was accessible was was not necessarily difficult, but it was something I had to pay a lot of attention to as I was going to make sure it didn't slip into sort of academic language. Um, I think most illustrative of that is the title. Mm-hmm. I mean, you get asked about the, t- the title "Too Dumb for Democracy." It pops off the book. Question mark. Question mark. Question, Question mark. mark. That's right. <laughs> um, you get asked about the title a lot. I mean, it's a good title. Um, why did that fit for you? Well, it's not mine. I I stole it. Um, you know, fun fact: you can't copyright a title. Uh, you can't. You can't copyright a title. So yours could have and, been like Harry Potter and, and the, the Sorcerer's Stone, and the Sorcerer's Stone yeah. colon why we make bad political decisions. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and. But it was, I, I asked for permission anyway, just in good faith. So years ago, I did an episode of, of CBC Radio uh, Ideas for my dissertation yes. book in 2014. And they picked it. And I thought, oh, man. You know, I was, it was pretty early in my academic days. So I was worried about, you know, how I interacted with the public, how I engaged in the, in, in the broader public because academics get kind of nervous and they're not super used to being taken to task in public. You're taking a task in small rooms on campus. Right. Not in, Nationally, yeah. So I, you know, went and did this, and CBC Radio goes out to a lot of people. And I woke up the next day and thought, "Oh boy, am I going to get it now? You know, gonna, we're going to hear from people, and they are not going to be happy." And then the feedback started rolling in, and it was like universally positive. And everyone said the same thing: "I absolutely agree with you. I know just the person you're talking about." <laughs> So everyone was assuming I was talking about someone else. Like, yeah, we, the we didn't include them. It was their neighbor, it was their doctor, it was their lawyer, it was their mom, it was their dad. It was never them. So the title has actually been really, really well received. Yeah. But what I like about it is that it allows me to answer in the negative, right? And so the, the big argument of the book isn't, is, is that we're not too dumb for democracy, but we're encouraged to be when our psychological shortcomings, if you want to call them that, or, or psychological limitations are exploited. And we, and because our environment encourages us to make less than ideal decisions. So 
the sort of axis of the book is, you know, that delineation between what's a good political decision and what underpins that and then what's a bad political mm. decision. So let's start on the positive side. What, what's a good political decision? So it's really tempting to say, uh, well, a good political decision is is any decision I like or agree with. And that's sort of what we do, right? I mean, this is pretty common in, in certainly in partisan politics is you'll either get a, your marching order from some partisan source. That might be a party. That might be a policy group. It might be a, you know, a riding level. So it might, who knows? And then you defend it. That's what you do. Or you might truly believe it, but not know why. But you'll go to the ends of the earth to defend it. I was like that as a, as a young liberal mm-hmm. when, years ago when I knocked on doors and recruited folks. I talk about this in the book. And, you know, so it's tempting then to say, well, good, if, I, if it comes from the leader's office, I like it, or if, if, I, if uh, it's for my party, I like it. The problem is that doesn't get you anywhere. Someone comes along and says, okay, well, I've got a different position. Now you've got nowhere to go. Now it's just about voting. So uh, I, I want to move away from that. And my argument is a good political decision is rational and autonomous. So when you fall back on process, what you can do is uh, agree on effectively rules of the game so that you can adjudicate disagreement. And so my argument is, well, okay, we want a good political decision, and that should be rational in a way that you collect information about the world, that information is accurate, it's verifiable, it's true. You can share it with someone else who says, oh, yeah, okay, I I can see that. You say that is a yellow flower. I look at it, it's a yellow flower. It's a yellow flower. The next step is autonomy. A good political decision should be autonomous, by which I mean you should be able to have reasons for it, and those reasons should be true. And, and the way I put it is uh, you should have reasons for your reasons because it's very easy to say I support policy X for the following reasons and those reasons are all bull. Hmm. They're all rationalizations or lies or et cetera, et cetera. So what I've done is taken theories of democratic deliberation, which is what I studied, and built on top of that sort of an extra layer hmm. to try to address some of the psychological shortcomings that, that get exploited. So the flip side of that, and, and you touched on this, how does someone listening to this, and I'm sure as I was reading it, I was trying to go through my own biases. Mm-hmm. Like I, you know, you think about all those things that I agree with or disagree with. And I started to look back and assess why I agreed or I disagreed mm-hmm. with them. Um, so as people are listening to this, I, how do we tell the difference between a bad political decision and a political decision that we disagree with? Well, it's hard. And I mean, I, you know, I try to make clear in the book, and certainly when I'm talking about this, that I have tons of biases. I'm full of them. The The difference is I've gotten pretty good at, at picking them up. Not perfect, but pretty good. And, you know, so in the book I talk about things you can do as an individual to sort of try to check this. There are little things like being aware that emotions play a role in, in your political decision-making and being aware that, that biases are on the table. I mean, that sounds like perhaps it's obvious or, or that it's a little too too easy. But the fact is just being aware of something like that makes a huge difference because all of a sudden you're thinking, right, that, it's on the register and you're catching it. That, well, why did that make me really, really angry? Or why did I just nod my head the whole time and then later say, yeah, I agree, without ever checking whether or not there were grounds for agreement? So putting it on the register that there's going to be emotional content does, does a lot of work. Um, then you want to be kept honest. So having people around you that disagree with you uh, does a lot of work too. Because the goal is to kick off cognitive autopilot. It's really easy to stay on autopilot. Mm-hmm. Someone who disagrees with you might say something like, well, why? 
You know, I mean, it sounds so simple, but you know, if you're sitting there nodding all the time, and someone comes along and says, "Well, why?" and you can't answer, then there's a problem, right? So there's little things like that. Uh, you can also achieve something similar by reading sources that are contrary to your typical belief set. So making sure you've got a variance of of, of content, um, iteration is what I, uh, another. Um, tactic I talk about, which is just practice makes perfect. I mean, it's something you've got to set some time aside for and practice at. Um, and, you know, the, and and then, of course, taking the time to actually think about this. I mean, the, it sounds like, a again, an obvious thing, but it's people don't do it. If you take 15 minutes a day to deliberately try to ask yourself, okay, what do I believe? Why do I believe it? And assess what you're reading. You'd be amazed at what you come away with. You write a lot in the early chapters of the book about how the brain works and devote some time to sort of the emotional or the passionate mm -hmm. brain. And which is a fascinating sort of framing device for the rest of the book. Um, one of the reasons it, you focus a lot on the, the emotional brain is that it um, can cloud our rational decision-making. Mm -hmm. Our goal is to, to approach rational decision-making, particularly with politics. Um, and one of the things the emotional brain responds to is membership in like an in-group, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, you know, we map on top of this, you know, membership of a political party, but yeah. it could be simple things like we both have brown hair. Yeah. You and I both have beards and glasses. It's, you know, we, yeah. we are um, members of, of, of a little in-group. Um, all that stuff in our system mm -hmm. Is being targeted and mm -hmm. exploited, though, right? Yeah. It's not just passive, right? No. We have we have political parties who, in uh, their job is to persuade, sure. um, but you also have people who are more maliciously targeting and manipulating and um, spending money mm -hmm. to sort of make you realize that you belong to a tribe that you never thought that you belonged, mm -hmm. and that means X, Y, Z. Uh, maybe I'm running at the question of like, <laughs> what hope do we have in, in that yeah. kind of in that kind of context? Well, most people aren't partisan. Is the good news uh, when it comes to partisanship? I mean, I'm all for partisanship. I'm I'm a big supporter of a partisan political system. You can do it worse, and you can do it better. Uh, I'd prefer us to do it better, uh, in the sense that there is a little more honesty, a little more deliberation, a little more freedom within the party to disagree. Of course, that puts pressure on on people not to jump on every little party disagreement as a crisis, right? Part of that. I feel for political parties because it's easy for us to say, well, we want them to be more open. We want them to disagree. And then when they disagree, we run process stories on the disagreement for weeks right. and make them look right. like they're in disarray. Uh, so, But there is hope in the sense that we can build deliberation into our existing institutions. I mean, this isn't about uh, resetting democracy. Um, I'm... I'm a social democrat. I'm very nervous about how we treat institutions, though. Mm -hmm. In that sense, I'm I'm fairly conservative. That I I'm very much a devotee of the old line: "You never tear down a fence until you know why it was built." Um, in part because we're pretty bad at building fences from scratch. And so, you know, so what I'm trying to do is insert deep, deliberative, in fact, radical politics into existing institutions mm -hmm. that are backed by empowerment so that people have the resources, the time, um, the opportunity to engage in them so that we, when you have a distribution of, of power in your society, which we do, it's a little more equitable. Mm. And when it is a little more equitable and it's deliberative, people start to trust the system more. They start to get more out of it. Um, they get more of what they want and what they need to live good lives. And the what that ends up doing, I think, is building a sort of, you know, uh, walls around democracy mm -hmm. to protect it from the flood of what's coming, which is 
fake news, misinformation, disinformation, distrust, foreign attacks, um, the, you know, the worst of climate change, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Because for me, the nightmare scenario is de- de- democracy is in, in decline globally. It's in democratic global recession. When the worst of, say, climate change starts to arrive, what's going to happen to our institutions? I think as is, they collapse. And as I write about in the book, the history mm-hmm. of democracy is the history of collapse, or us barely clinging on to it. It's hard. And we forget that 100 years ago, um, you know, there were hardly any democracies left. There was a couple. And it, we could see that again. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, th- there is hope. It is difficult, but it's not radical in the sense that we need to, to change everything. It's radical in the sense that we need to go back to the roots and build those into and, and build deliberative um, participatory politics into our, our current institutions. So we were recording this in Ottawa. Um, it's a it's a government town, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and but a government town doesn't necessarily mean it's a political town. It's also you know, it's a run on the backs of the public service and mm-hmm. our, our public service. Um, we know a lot of our listeners um, uh, hail from you know they're an analyst at you know Treasury Board or or they're um, working in a department or on a file on the sort of the more bureaucratic side of things. One of the more um, concerning things that that often gets said about the public service is that, um, and I was triggered reading your book on, on this, is that um, process gets mistaken for progress. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I agree with you that that underpinning our political decisions with good process is essential. That's mm-hmm. how that's that's the bargain. That's how yeah. this all works. Um, the worry, though, is that we over. Um, that we make things overly bureaucratic, yes. that we kind of get into that bureaucratic intransigence. Um, so where's the fine line? Like, wh- how do you not process things to death? Yeah, so, you know, it's funny. I, I One of my worries is that the, the collapse of democracy in the next few years, I mean, I, the way I'm thinking about it now is that democracy, in a, you know, liberal democracy, is up against the rise of populist authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. It's also up against the rise of, obviously, fascism, it's up against the rise of, of a technocracy as well, which is yeah. sort of stripping away of politics and replacing it with a rule by experts, which is a huge problem. I want to deeply politicize our politics by saying that, okay, look, this process is inherently political, mm-hmm. um, that there is no divide in this sense between process and politics because the process is the process of citizens and policymakers mm-hmm. coming up with good political decisions. So that's going to be inherently pro- – so in fact, what I'm pushing against are processes that are removed from the population at large and depoliticized. I want to bring them back. And now uh, the public service ends up playing a critical role in that because they outlast every government every time. I mean, there's, so there's a lot of hope in the pu- a public service that is committed to democratic deliberation and foresight to build these sorts of things and support these sorts of things. But you know what I want to do is devolve some of the political decision-making process to citizens through mm-hmm. institutions of participatory budgeting, citizens' assemblies, all that, but devolve it. And you know those things work really, really well and generate all kinds of democratic goods. So I, I'm nervous about people who, who want to draw back on democracy at the time, we should be doubling down on it, right? And this is a case for, for doubling down on it within the institutions of, of participatory democracy. Because, and this is an important distinction. You know, I don't want everyone to be a politician. I don't want to be a politician. You know, everyone, most people I know don't want to be politicians. The whole point of having representative 
government is that you can live your life. You don't have to be a politician. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. I very much like that. <laughs> I'd rather sit on my couch and play video games. And I'm very thankful of those who want to do it because I don't have to. So uh, that's great. But, uh, you know, th- we ought to also say that we need people to be in that space to make sure that we're getting the policies we want and keeping governments honest mm-hmm. a little bit more than they currently are. <laughs> Not all the time, but more than currently. And so it, it very much is, a, a you know, pushing for quality over quantity. And that's the reason, for instance, I prefer citizens' assemblies to referendums, which are just, as a rule, completely awful messes, right? As we have, wow, we've got lots of evidence of that, don't we? So that ends up being a pretty important distinction and and one I hope people pick up on. Um, you, you talk about the brain, how it works and how we think about the brain and how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the popular conception is that the brain is a computer. And as you <laughs> yeah. said, and you debunked that, right? The brain is not a computer. It's, it's, it's the furthest thing from that. Um, you, you, you point that out to us at a time when we are the, the, the dawn of an artificial intelligence era, mm-hmm. right? And I'm wondering what that does to some of the models that you think about and some of the framing that that you think about in terms of where we're headed there. We've got a, an AI-obsessed government that wants to turn Canada into an AI leader. And I'm just yeah. wondering what that, like, what that portends for our political institutions. It's a good question. I, you know, it wasn't something I thought about when I was writing the book, so I'm thinking about it as we talk. But typically what we have historically done and Joe Heath writes about this in Enlightenment 2.0, is, is taken our crappy little brains and built them out into the environment in ways that the environment can support us, right? We find kludges, we find institutional supports, we take our crappy little brains, we take our environment, and we make ourselves better by leveraging it to make our lives easier. The Dewey Decimal System, for instance, right? Right. You know, right. things like that. Uh, later computers and file storage systems and post-it notes and all kinds of things because so, we can't remember, right? So we, or we can't organize naturally in our brains. So we have come up with these systems. Uh, AI and more broadly digital technologies are enhancements in that same sense, I think. Uh, the question is, what do we do with those enhancements? And because they will be inherently political, what effect do they have on the on the broader society? Are they egalitarian? Do they support us? Um, do we do they devolve us into technocracy because we just can't be bothered? You know, it, are they a tool for depoliticization, which could be a problem since people always get left behind? Um, one of the elements of that is is algorithms. Yeah, you know, we know that algorithms can cause trouble. YouTube is one of the greatest um, radicalizing forces on the internet right now, and in part because that's in part because they're their algorithm, right? We know that some algorithms for self-driving cars don't recognize the faces of racialized folks, right? Mm-hmm. This is something where, like you know, the, the, effectively we're taking these technologies and pretending that they're neutral, but they don't. They affect people very, very differently in pretty critical ways. So I think you know AI could be a great tool for supporting. Um, states, of course, for business, but in the, I'm talking about the political context and supporting states in, in efforts to deeply democratize the population. But you got to get the design right. Yeah. Um, so I don't think it's inherently a good thing. It is, as Foucault would say, potentially useful but potentially dangerous. You write uh, occasionally for the Washington Post. Um, yeah, I'm a contributing uh, columnist. A, now. A contributing columnist. I, I I belong to them now. You, I'm part of the Post family. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> Democracy dies in the darkness. Um, <laughs> We're required to repeat that once again. Yes. So thank you for meeting the quota. Um, how do you frame Canadian political decision making for an American audience? It's a weird. So what, uh, you know, 
I got this gig the way that everyone gets gigs these days from Twitter. And so, I mean, I'm a big fan of social media, a big fan of technology. So I don't, I hope it doesn't come off otherwise. But, um, so I messaged the editor and said, yeah, I can do this. You know, I'm really keen to write. Can I write about Doug Ford? And I was like, oh, he's not going to let me write about Doug Ford. Like, what are the... And he was really, really keen. And, and so what I found was, that, you know, my marching orders are, um, are to write about Canada in whatever way I see fit um, for whatever province, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? I mean, they're, they're very ecumenical about that and very open to it. The, the only, this is going to sound like silly, but the truth is the only framing that I actually do is occasionally repeating things like the governing party instead of just saying the liberals right, right. and then translating dollars into like CAD instead of USD. You know, it, it's all really tiny things because the, the goal of, of, of the section that I write for in the post is to talk about a country from that country for the world. So those are the, the parameters. Now, the way that I do it to try to, you know, make it, um, accessible is to make sure that I'm not getting into particularly arcane, fine-grained distinctions. But the truth is that most of Canadians wouldn't pick up on that either. So I take the same sort of sensibility when writing there as I would anywhere else, which is, you know, it should be accessible to people and don't get lost in the weeds. And, and this is the most important thing, avoid the curse of knowledge. Um, the idea that the things you know are known by everyone because they're not. Mm-hmm. And I see this, I see academics succumb to this all, academics are the worst. They're mostly hopeless when it comes to the curse of knowledge. They just, they cannot envision a reader, right? Because they think they're writing for an expert and they're defending themselves against other experts. So they don't think of, of the reader uh, more generally. Uh, some journalists are, are fall for that too, but uh, the best people writing out there have that reader in mind and don't fall for the curse of knowledge. And, and that's certainly what I try for. So, and since the release of your book, um, Facebook actually took some of the steps that that you identify. I'm not saying that you you caused Facebook to No, ban. they don't return my calls. They don't. <laughs> but one of the things that I think you identified in in terms of like improving our environments was that technology companies and and you know social media in particular um should take steps to sort of improving the environment and and recognizing that um, that when we had this this great amplification of everyone's voices that that was not that was not necessarily all equal, and there would be bad actors, and there would be people who would be uh, creating hateful spaces. Mm-hmm. And so they've actually gone and they've banned white supremacists, like you know here in Canada, Faith Goldie most most uh, I think prominently. A, you know, why do you think it took them so long? <laughs> and B, what what more needs to be done? Like what more is left on the table there? Well, I mean, it took them a long time because they make money off of controversy, you know. I mean, the most of those ills are about the fact that companies are protecting their bottom line, which is clicks and advertising dollars. Now, I also think there are people in there who are genuinely worried about censorship and good for them, and that's a concern that they should have, and we should it's something we should talk about. Because you know, if you have these massive companies that effectively become arbiters of the public space, do we want them being in charge of who gets to speak and who doesn't? That's a serious question. And one that needs to be figured out because to whom do we give the job of censoring content? I get nervous when it's government. I get more nervous when it's companies because the government at least ostensibly cares about the public interest. Companies don't. They care about the shareholder shareholder value. That's their job, um, strictly speaking. So that worries me. Uh, the I, I don't know the answer 
But one thing I do know is that we need to make a distinction between 19th century John Stuart Mill style free speech where it was in a coffee house or a pamphleteers on the side of the road mm-hmm. and free speech in an era that is uh, digital media and social media driven. It's different. It's different in the sense that the speed, volume, reach is different, that you can rally people, that you can incite people from thousands of kilometers away, that you can harass people and they can't go anywhere. You know, it's one thing if it's on the street, you walk away. You walk and you leave the coffee house. You can't necessarily do that online when you've got armies of trolls, armies of hateful, you know, in massive amounts of hateful con- content coming at you. So I think, you know, whatever the answer ends up being, it starts with making a distinction between the environment in which our, you know, free speech was born, in the contemporary environment or the modern environment, a couple hundred years ago, and the current digital media environment and say, it's different and we need to think about it differently. And part of that is you make sure you've got a policy you make sure that it's clear. You make sure that it's applied evenly to the extent that it's possible. And so you hire people to do that. The company's going to have to spend some money making sure they've got sufficient people. And they're going to have to pay those people well because that's a tough job. We learn that the folks at Facebook doing this job are not happy. And how could they possibly be? Uh, and they're not sufficiently paid. And then you set that up and then you apply it evenly. And you make sure that you get the most egregious folks and they're starting. And you keep in mind, and I'll, I'll end on this point, deplatforming works. I mean, it, it, you know, we get this concern that from from free speech types, you know, free speech purists, that um, if if a single person is banned, then free speech has been compromised, and that's it. Well, that's not true. You know, it cleans up the environment. The question is, you know, is it going to be abused? Because you know, Isaiah Berlin's old line was, "Freedom for the pikes is death to the minnows." Can you really have free speech when you've got armies of trolls harassing and running good faith actors off the internet? No. Mm-hmm. Where, where, are the, right. where are the tears for them? So the question is, you know, how do you identify and remove the most egregious folks in a way that's consistent um, and, and accountable? And, and I think we're working towards it. And I do think we'll get there, but we're not there yet. The book is Too Dumb for Democracy, Why We Make Bad Political Decisions and How We Can Make Better Ones. Uh, David Mosscrop is with me here in the studio. Um, if people want to immediately start improving the <laughs> decisions, the political <laughs> decisions that they make. I, let's let's make the assumption number one is go buy your book. Yes, um, yes. of course. Yeah. Um, but what are, what are some things? Um, and they've kind of been sprinkled throughout the episode. But um, what are some things that people can do to sort of start improving not only decisions they make for themselves, but also helping other people as well? I'll do a two by two, two for people and two for governments, because I have a, a feeling maybe some government types listen. <laughs> Possibly. Just maybe. <laughs> Just maybe. So let me start with, with um, the population at large. One is be aware that some of your decisions will be emotional. Be aware that some of your decisions will be, will be driven by biases that you might not be aware of. Um, you know, Get that on the register because once you are open to that possibility, then all of a sudden you can start to interrogate your decisions. So throw out the idea that you're a rational computer that's you know, driven only by rationality and reasons. You can get close to that, but you don't start there. Uh, and the second thing is surround yourself in good faith with people that disagree with you. I mean, it does a lot of work. I'm not talking about people who are disagreeable. I'm talking about people who disagree. There's a lot of people out there who in good faith will sit down and say, I don't think so, and tell you why. Uh, that'll kick you off cognitive autopilot probably and, and does a lot of work. That's the population at large. Now the government types. We need to build participatory democratic institutions so that people can practice good political decision-making with live ammo. And there's two great ways to do that. One, citizens' assemblies, where you bring people together to make policy decisions. 
not every policy decision. It could be for agenda setting. It could be one particular policy. I did it with electoral reform in Ontario and British Columbia 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Uh, and the other thing is participatory budgets. Uh, lots of good public goods associated with participatory budgets at municipal levels on up through the federal level. Give people there, give them a small part of the budget to align. What we find is that they spend it in really wise ways. They feel better about the public process. And with like with citizens' assemblies, they build civic capacity, and then they become little civic nodes to go help others too. And once you start doing all of these things, you get a sort of self-reinforcing cycle of, of, of civic virtue. David, where can people find more of your work on the internet? Oh boy! Uh, so uh, they can they can follow your your impressive collection of gifts on Twitter. <laughs> Getting uh, really yes, good, very good at those. Uh, yes, I'm at David underscore Mosscrop on Twitter, but um, also anywhere on uh, the Washington Post, McLean's, the Globe and Mail, and of course the book, which is available at fine booksellers online and offline across the country. Thanks for coming in, man. Thanks for having me. Quality content is hosted by me, Alex Patterson. My producer today was Sarah Turnbull, and my editor is Olivia Levesque. The 2020 Network is presented by Interac and is a production of Canada 2020, Canada's leading independent progressive think tank. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps more curious and engaged listeners like yourselves find us. And if you'd like to give us some feedback about how we're doing, what you like, what you don't like, new episode or guest ideas, we're listening. You can follow me at Alex G. Patterson on Twitter or send me an email at alex at canada2020.ca. We've just announced a series of new events in the Canada 2020 studio in Ottawa, so I encourage you to visit our website and social platforms to see how you can enjoy important conversations about pharmacare, connectivity, Indigenous economic reconciliation, and more. That's it for me. Until next time. For Canadians, paying with Interact Debit is synonymous with access to your own money. In 2018, Canadians made over 6 billion Interact Debit transactions. That's the equivalent of 160 per person. Interact Debit is accepted at nearly 500,000 businesses across Canada and growing. Learn more at newsroom.interact.ca.